This is the Hoboken Grace Podcast. Whether you're in the car or enjoying a walk, we hope you're having a great day. Just like every weekly conversation, we hope today's message deepens your relationship with God and builds into your life in a helpful way. For access to our full podcast library, visit HobokenGrace.com or our app. Excellent. Well, good mo- good afternoon and welcome. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris. I'm lead pastor here at Hoboken Grace. And we are currently in the middle of this conversation. Actually, today we're wrapping up this conversation called Habit Forming. If you haven't been with us, make sure that you go back and watch or listen online because we don't have time to be able to go through all of it. But to summarize, for the past couple of weeks, what we've been doing is we've been looking at how to change what is probably one of the most important or most life-shaping questions in our lives. And for most of us, from the time that we were this old, we've been asked over and over again, okay, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are you going to be when you grow up? And even today, we're still shaping, okay, what do we want to do when we grow up? But as we've come to Scripture and as we started off this year, we've looked at this reality that God steps into our life and says, okay, listen, you were created on purpose for a purpose. You're not randomly, you're not randomly part of this story. You're not randomly part of this song. We, you've been using that illustration. But no, you, you were created with a specific note to play. You were created with a specific role to play. And so with that understanding, we realize, okay, well then if that's true, then I have to, I have to change the question because the question isn't what do I want to be when I grow up? The, the question is, who am I created to be? And we've been leaning into that. Okay, God, who did you create me to be? What is that role? What is that note? How do I play that as best as I possibly can? Who am I created to be? And then in week two, we looked at, okay, while we're wrestling through that with God and asking God that question, because it's not answered immediately, what do we do in the meantime? And, And we looked at, okay, well, we start with what we know to do. And there are certain things in life that we know. God said, okay, this is what I want for you to do. And we've talked, we talked about these as the anchors in our life. And other the, the, the things that are consistent in our life around which everything else is fluid. And hopefully you've begun to look at that in your life and, and ask yourself that question. Okay, what are the anchors in my life? What are the things in your calendar that can't be moved? That trump everything else? Well, those are, those are the anchors in your life. And we talked about, well, how do we make sure that the anchors in our life are actually the things that we know God wants us to do and make sure that everything else is fluid around those. They They don't get bumped by anything else. So we, we do what we know God's asked us to do. And then in addition to that, we, we look at the answers we already have. Because we're asking, okay, who did you create me to be? But in a lot of ways, he's already given us certain answers that should direct us, certain principles that we should live by. He talks to us about the importance of our giftedness. And for some of you, if you just look at what he's already asked you to do and you look at the answers you already have, it drastically changes the trajectory of your life because you realize, okay, the career that I'm in, I can't actually do what he's asked me to do if I stay in that career or that job or whatever that may be. And so it's changing. Or if I looked at my giftedness, it doesn't really fit the direction that I'm going. Or if I look at the people that I believe that he's called me to, it doesn't actually fit the direction that I'm going. And so I realize I have to make a change. And hopefully you've begun to, you've begun to make that change so that you can live out who he's created you to B, I've had a lot of fun with this with my boys because I've been asking them this new question for quite, for quite some time now, several, several months because I've been studying through this before we even got to the series. And, 
And sometimes they'll talk to me about what they want to be when they grow up, and I ask them, well, do you really think, when you look at the experiences and things that God's already answered in your life, do you think that that's actually your giftedness? Do you think that's what God actually created you to be? Maybe you want to be a YouTuber when you grow up, but I don't necessarily think that fits what God's already answered in your life. And, but, but sometimes that will actually answer the question, and, or at least shift our direction in our life when we look at the answers that we already have. So we're asking the most important question, who am I created to be? We're doing what we already know to do. We're looking at the answers that we already have. And then last week we, we looked at, or Anthony walked us through, and he talked to us about how that shaped his life, right? He talked about how the answers he already had, and he looked at his giftedness. It, he realized, wait, God was calling him in a different direction. It's why he works here at Hoboken Grace. And he talked about the impact of that on his life. And then he introduced us to kind of this next step, or the next domino, if you will, to fall, which is that we begin to look at life and say, well, what is it that I need to take off, or what is it that I need to put on in my life? What needs to go? When I, when I look at what I know about who God wants me to be, what needs to go, and then what needs to be added. And I, I want to stop here for a second because I want to make sure that we don't miss the significance of this. And, we, and we've said this multiple times throughout our journey. As God steps into our life, he doesn't just say, okay, listen, you're a manager, like manage well what I've given you. No, he actually says that, we're a multi, that you're a multiplier. You're, you're not just a manager, you're a multiplier. In other words, he doesn't just step in and say, hey, listen, I want you to manage this and don't screw it up. Now, I know some of you are managers at work, and you're like, wait, we do more than that. We're not. But you understand the terminology that I'm using here. So he, he doesn't step in and say, okay, I've given this to you. Don't blow it. He actually says, I've given this to you so that you can multiply it, and I expect you to multiply it. Now, I hope that this hits you the way that it hits me. I hope this hits you the right way, because I do think there's two ways that we can respond to this. For some of us, we hear that, and we're overwhelmed by it. Because we think, oh my goodness, I have to multiply. How in the world am I going to be able to multiply what it is that God's given me? How do I know if I'm even multiplying what it, what it is that God's given me? And we can become overwhelmed by it. I don't think that's how this should hit you when God steps into your life. And we saw this with the principle of the talents or the parable of the talents that he says, okay, you are a multiplier. I'm calling you to be a multiplier. I think the way that this should hit you is that it should be phenomenally encouraging and exciting. Because here's the thing. God's not stepping in and saying, I want you to overachieve and become a multiplier. He actually says, no, this is how you were created. This is what you were created for. And so rather than it being overwhelming to me, it's like, oh my goodness, look at what God is saying about who I am, that he's calling me, that he expects me to be, that he believes I can be a multiplier that this actually could be a reality in my life. But unfortunately, all too often we settle for less than that. There's actually this interesting passage in Romans chapter 3, very famous passage, Romans 3.23, where it says, for all have sinned and fall short of, and then the end of it is an interesting, it's an interesting word or a couple words there to translate. So if you look at multiple translations, you'll see multiple different they've actually translated the end of that passage a little bit differently because it's one of those situations where there's not really English that captures it exactly right. Oftentimes it's translated for all fall short of the glory of God. But if you look at it closely, there's something more to it. So some of them actually translate that you've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. In other words, we've fallen short of the glory for which we were created. 
and that you were created to be part of this glorious story that God is telling, and God intended for you to be a part of this, this glorious thing that he's doing, but we've fallen short of that. In other words, you, he says, sin is not just when you, when you destroy what is. It's actually, sin is actually... Sin is actually when you fall short of what you were intended to be. And God steps into, into our life and says, no, you were intended to be this, which is incredibly, I think, incredibly exciting. And for all of us, there are different things that mean the most to us about Jesus. So if I were to go around this room and ask you what's amazing about Jesus, almost all of us would give different answers or, or phrase it differently. So for some of you, it might, it might be God's forgiveness. And the thing you love about Jesus is that you've been forgiven and you don't carry the weight and the guilt of your past and you've been freed for that. And that's what you would talk about when you talk about Jesus. For others of you, it's not that. It's love and you, you crave being loved and you, you didn't experience love growing up. So you, you wanted so much to be loved and you finally found that in Jesus. For others of you, it's family. You grew up outside. You didn't have a, a family. You didn't know what it was what it was to be part of a family. So the fact that you're adopted, that, that's what you love the most about Jesus. And that's what you celebrate the most about Jesus. For me, it's none of those things. And those things are all really significant. But the thing that I love most about Jesus is the fact that he stepped into my life and said, you can live a life that matters. Because what I craved in life and what I crave in life is is to know that my life actually matters. That at the end of the day, it is somehow in some way significant. And I tried to find that in so many different things. And all of it, just like Ecclesiastes, all of it was meaningless. Until Jesus said, no, you can actually live a life that's not just significant for 80 years. It's eternally significant. And that to me is unbelievable. That to me, it just blows me away. And I hope that's what you hear when you hear him say, no, you're a multiplier. You're not just a manager, you're a multiplier and he's calling us to this. And so when we're talking about this and we're changing the question, what do I need to do? What are the anchors? What do I know I, he's called me to do? And then what are the answers that I already have? How do I live that out? How do I put off and put on it's the most important journey of our life. So that we can actually be, we can live up to the potential with which we were created. The part of the story that we were created to step into and to live out. But today, what I want to do is, I want to talk about, we talked about last week, okay, put out, and hopefully you came out of last week, and you started to work through that list inside of your groups. Anthony was pretty adamant with you that you should do that, and so hopefully you listened to him and actually practiced that, and you identified, okay, these are the things that I want to put on, and these are the things that I want to put off, or maybe it's going back to the anchors, the things that you know God's asked you to do, that you say, I want to start practicing those things. Hopefully at this point, you have some idea of what those things are, or you're even beginning to work towards those things. 
But what I want to do today, before we conclude this, because it's so phenomenally significant, is I don't want to just talk about the what. I want to talk about the how. I want to talk about the how. Because my fear is that many of you walked out of last week or you walked through this past week and you identified all that you needed to put off and you identified what you needed to put on and then you thought, I, that's great that I know that, but I've known that for a long time, so how in the world do I actually do it? And we can become overwhelmed by that. And, and sometimes I think a mistake that we make in church, and I'm guilty of this for sure, is that we talk a lot about what we should do, but not very much about how to do it. Jesus, I think, actually talked about this with the Pharisees when he said, you heap heavy burdens on their shoulders, but you don't lift a finger to help them. In other words, you tell them all these things that they need to do, that they should do, but you don't actually help them to see how to do it or help them to actually live it out. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about the how. Now, last week when Anthony was talking about put off, put on, he took you to Ephesians, but he also took you to Colossians. And I want to go back to that passage in Colossians because there's something there that ties to something that we talked about in Romans. But I think it also, it helps us to begin to think about how we do this. So Colossians 3, 9 through 10 says this. It says, do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Now, you may, not have, you may not have noticed this last week, but it's really significant because Paul's using the same terminology that we saw in Romans 12 when he says, I want for you to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We talked about that idea of renovating your mind, that you're rebuilding your mind. Well, in Colossians, he's using the same terminology. And so he says, you need to be renewed in knowledge, this idea of renewing your mind. Again, he's talking about the significance of this. And that, that verse, if you remember in Romans, it's this idea of a renovation, the way that you would renovate a house. And so you come in and you're taking things out and you're adding things in. And he's talking about this put on and put off, but it's tied to this renovation of your mind. And so how do we, we've seen that he's asking us to do this, but how do we do this? Now, I think that this verse gives us several, several clues to this. One has to do with the renovation of your mind, but also understanding, understanding that your old self or your flesh, if you will, I'm going to use that terminology because it's used throughout the New Testament, used throughout Romans, really important for you to understand that your flesh has all of these old practices. Another way that this word is translated sometimes as habits. And I think you should think about it that way in terms of habits. The, your flesh has all of these old habits. Those are the things that you're trying to put off. But you need to think about them as habits. Now, let me talk about flesh for one second, because some of you have never heard this terminology. And I think it's, it's important for you to understand when Jesus steps into your life, not only does he say that he's given his life for you to be forgiven, but he also, he also says that when you step into a relationship with him, you're adopted into his family, and then he makes you new. So he makes you into a new creation. He literally creates you anew inside of yourself. Your spirit is made new. Jesus talks about it. Maybe you've heard him say it as you're reading through the Gospels as being born again. You are made new but you still have your flesh and your flesh still has all of its old practices or habits. And that's what you have to begin to. And throughout the New Testament, Paul talks like about this battle that's raging within him between his spirit and his flesh. In other words, that which has been created new and his flesh that he still, that still has those old habits and practices. 
And he's calling us consistently, okay, you need to put off those old habits and practices. So that's what we're talking about when, when we're talking about flesh and spirit. We're, we'll mention that multiple times as we move forward. But I want to talk for a second about this idea of practices because we, many of you walked out of last week and you thought, okay, I have to put off these things. And as you made your list, you thought about them as actions. So I have to stop doing this. And you thought about it as an action. It's actually significant for you to stop thinking about it that way and to start thinking about it as a habit. Because most of those things that you're trying to put off are habits. And so you say, well, okay, I'm going to stop getting angry. Well, anger isn't just something that you decided in a moment. It's a habit. It's not that something happens and you think to yourself, well, you know what? Should I get angry? I think maybe this time I'll get angry. And then you, and then you get angry. It's not actually, which is why you so struggle to put it off. Why? Because it's not just an action. You didn't even think about it. It's a habit. It's something that happens in your life naturally because your old self has developed these practices. It's actually built into you. Now, you need to understand how a habit works if you're going to be able to work through how you both identify them and then how do you put them off. A habit is composed of three different things. You can look at any study of habits and it will teach you the same thing. So a habit is a trigger. So there's something that happens that triggers it. There's a routine. There's some type of practice that happens, some type of action that happens. And then there is a reward. That's a habit. So you, you decided last week, well, I'm not going to become angry, angry anymore. But then as you move through your week, and one of the things that's important, if you're going to put off these habits or practices of the flesh that have built in, have been built into your life, well, most of your, let's say most of you are 22. For the last 22 years, that's about right, right? So, but you have, as, you, as you've lived for the past 22 years, these things have been, these practices have been formed within you. So there's a trigger. Now, one of the questions you're going to have to ask is, what is the trigger? And if you're going to put off a habit, you need to know the trigger. And so maybe for you, your anger is triggered by the fact that you were disrespected. And so I'm disrespected, and so therefore I'm going to become angry. And then the other thing that a habit does is it promises some type of reward. And so I feel a certain way or experience something as a result of this. Now, this is where this idea of renewing your mind comes in. This is not just, you cannot just think about this as an action. This is actually something that is imprinted in your mind. It's imprinted in your brain. It's a habit. In other words, there's a neural pathway that has been formed that when you experience this trigger, this is what happens. So you don't think about it. It just happens. And then afterwards, you think, I've got to stop doing that. Well, it takes a little more work than that to renew your mind, to renovate your mind. And you're really going to have, you actually have to do that. You have to change the way that neural pathway works in your mind. So you have to identify what the trigger is. So maybe for you, it's the fact that you're disrespected. Or maybe for you, it's the fact that, I don't know, some, something, expectation that you have wasn't met in your life. Anger is oftentimes linked to expectations. So you have an expectation of your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and that expectation isn't met, and so you become angry, and, and then it promises this reward. You need to pay attention to what the trigger is. And sometimes, if you're going to put off these old practices, you can just eliminate the triggers. You can ruthlessly eliminate the triggers. 
So, for example, one of the, oftentimes I work through this with individuals who are addicted to pornography. And one of the first things that we do is we begin to break down triggers. Well, what is the triggers? Oftentimes one of the triggers is being up late at night. So how do we get you to fall asleep? How do we get you to actually establish a healthy sleep pattern? Because being tired is one of the triggers. Or maybe one of the tri triggers is that you're disrespected at work or that you feel like a failure at work or, or you don't feel loved. There are all these different triggers that... And sometimes you can actually ruthlessly eliminate those things. But when it comes to anger, let's say that the trigger actually is that you're disrespected. Well, good luck at, at eliminating it because you live with people. And so you're going you're gonna to be, be disrespected. You're not going to be able to eliminate that trigger. So then you've got to look at, okay, how do I, what's the routine that I can change? But then also one of the other things that you really need to pay attention to is the reward. What is the reward that the habit or the routine is promising you? Because it's promising you some type of reward. So you're going to lose your temper and you're going to feel a certain way. Now, I think one of the most effective ways to put off habits is not just to eliminate triggers. We can talk about changing routines. But it's to undermine the reward. To undermine the reward because... The practices of your old self, the practices or habits of your flesh are promising you false rewards. They're act it's actually consistently promising you an imitation reward. Now, let me explain that to you. There are certain things in your life that you consistently crave. You cannot get rid of these things. You can try as much as you want. They're built into you. You crave them. Psalm 37 talks about them this way. It says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He refers to them in Psalms as the desires of your heart. Now, he says, if you take delight in the Lord, you're actually going to experience the desires of your heart. These are the things that you crave. Pay attention. He doesn't say he's going to give you the desires of your flesh. Oftentimes people come to this and say, oh, I took, I'm delighting in the Lord and I still don't have a new car. Well, he doesn't say he's going to give you the desires of your flesh. He says the desires of your heart. You say, well, what are the desires of your heart? I think that we see this flushed out further in Galatians when he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is oftentimes called the fruit of the Spirit passage because he's talking through, okay, if you delight in... If you draw close to the Spirit, if you draw close to God, there's a natural byproduct that shows up in your life. It's these things, love, joy, peace. Sometimes it's called patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I believe that this is what he's talking about in Psalm 37 when he's talking about the desires of your heart because you crave these things. You crave them. And you can work your whole life to get to where you don't crave love. Good luck. Where you don't crave joy. You can work as much as you want, as hard as you want. You are never going to eliminate these things from what you crave. Why? Because they were created to be part of your life. They were created to be part of you. Not because God would give them to you, but because he was created to be part of you. And as he is in relationship with you, as he draws close to you, these things show up. Have you ever heard, sometimes people talk about this, experiencing a God-shaped hole. Like before I met Jesus, there was this hole in my life. And 
I was craving something. I didn't really know what it was. But then as I stepped into it, the only, and sometimes people will say this saying, only God can fill a God-shaped hole. But what is the hole? What is it that you're craving? It's this. What is it that you cannot have outside of a relationship with God? This. Why? Because this is the natural byproduct, the outworking of his spirit in your life as you draw near to him. One of the really ridiculous things that sometimes we do is that we pray for God to give us the fruit of the spirit. And so we pray for God to give us love or to give us joy or to give us. These are not things that God gives or things that he even can give because they are not something that he that you experience apart from him. You can only know them. They can only be experienced. They can only be known as the fruit of his spirit. God cannot give them to you without him. It's impossible. This is why in Psalm 37, he says, if you delight yourself in the Lord as you draw near to him, all of a sudden, the desires of your heart, the things that you crave that you can't get away from, they become, he gives them to you, you experience them, you know them. Now, here's what's happening with your flesh and its old practices and these habits. It comes in and it says, okay, there's this trigger, there's routine, and then I'm going to give you this reward. Now, the rewards that the flesh offers are almost always masquerading as one of these. They're almost always an imitation of something that you actually crave, but they're an imitation. And they don't actually hold up, and you know it. But all too often we, su we settle for the imitation instead of the real thing. And so the you're at work and you don't feel value or you don't feel loved and so you come home and you call that guy or that girl that you know will sleep with you whenever you give them a call and, and you sleep with them and you're going to feel loved. Well, kind of, right? It promises you one of the things that you crave, but how long does that last? It's an imitation it's masquerading as one of the desires of your heart, but it's not actually. You see the same thing with pornography. You know, you feel like a failure, and so I'm going to open my phone and have some fake woman look at me in a certain way, and now I feel valuable or I feel successful, and that's going to be the reward. It's just an imitation of actual joy or peace, and you know it because two minutes later you're left with less than what you had before. And you can run through this, but you need to, with almost every habit that you want to put off, but you can try to eliminate the trigger. Sometimes you can change the routine. But one of the things that I found most powerful is to actually undermine the reward so that when that habit comes to me and says, okay, this is going to result in you feeling control. So you're, you're at work and someone falls short of your expectation or you think that they're messing up your future. So you lose your temper and you're going to be, in, now I'm powerful, look at me, I'm in control. Well, you do actually have a craving for self-control. But it's not the real thing, it's an imitation, it's masquerading. And in the process, it actually undermines what it is that you crave. And you can, you can do the work and it, you say, well, how? How do I put off? Well, think through this in your life. 
Think through it as it pertains to those things that you're trying to get rid of. Stop thinking about them as just actions. And start calling them out as liars. When I struggled through this myself with pornography, I, I would call it out as a liar all the time because pornography it promises you this, these things and all oh, you're going to feel. But to be able to be in the midst of it and say, you're a liar. I know what you bring. You don't bring what you promise. I know that. You are a liar. And that anger for you to be able to call it out, like you're a liar. May, you promise that I'm going to feel in control, but it actually causes everything around me to be out of control. You're a liar. Practices of the flesh are all liars. And the reward that it promises, it's just masquerading as one of the things that you crave. It's not actually one of the things that you crave. And so you undermine the reward. Over and over and over again, you undermine the reward. I'll talk about the routine in a little bit, but I don't want to spend a ton of time talking necessarily about the put-off side of things. Some of you are like, you already spent quite a bit of time on that, Chris. So, but because here's the thing. I don't, again, this is not just that you put off and then you put on... And this is important because some of you, you think about these two steps as two different things, putting off and putting on. They're not actually two different things. When you think about renovating your mind, you don't do one before the other. You do them both simultaneously. And, and even as God's stepping into our life, I think that he's calling us to this. So you never see one without the other. So it's never just put off. It's always together, this idea of put off, put on. And so it's not just that you take out the wall. If you just take out the wall, the whole house will fall down. You got to put something in its place. And I think it's actually oftentimes most effective to focus on the put on. So you say, I'm going to stop complaining. Well, you should actually focus more on gratitude. Because if you're successful in putting on gratitude, you'll actually stop complaining. And if you focus on what it is that you're becoming, it's amazing, all the, it's amazing how you won't have time for what you were. And so you're working at building this, this new wall inside the house. You're working at, at building this new pathway, if you will, in terms of, of habits. It's, it, one of the, if you go back to the flesh and the spirit thing, one of the best ways that I ever saw this illustrated, and maybe you'll understand this illustration, maybe you won't, because you're not, most of you have never been to a farm. But uh, one of the things that Jesus teaches is that he, he gives this parable of a farmer. He says Spreading the message of Jesus is like spreading seed, and then sometimes the seed, it catches and it starts to grow, but the weeds choke it out, right? And, and it dies out because the weeds are the concerns of this world and all that. He, and so there's times in life where you have to come in and, and the weeds are so big that you actually have to do this and you have to focus heavily on, okay, how do I get rid of this? Because the, that weed is choking you out. And I talked about pornography earlier. For some of you, that... That's a weed that you have to get rid of because it's choking you out. And it's, it's amazing how many people are hesitant to step into ministry or step into leadership because they're struggling with that. And it's telling them that they'll never, ever be used by God because, look, you can't even walk away from this. It's choking you out. And you need to get rid of it. But there's two ways that you can go about this. It, when, when you first... When you first plant corn, you have to be very intentional with the weeds. 
And God talks about our journey oftentimes as seeds. But when you first plant corn, you have to be intentional about the weeds because the weeds can really easily overtake it. But you don't just focus on the weeds. As a matter of fact, you spend a little bit of focus on the weeds. You spend most of the focus on how do you fertilize the seed. Because as the seed grows, you reach a point where the corn actually begins to choke out the weeds where all of a sudden it develops a canopy and the weeds can't really take root. And in your life, one of the, one of the decisions you make every day is, what is it that you're going to feed? Are you going to feed your flesh or are you going to feed your spirit? And the practice of putting on is feeding your spirit. So how do I grow? How do I grow? How do I grow? And, and again, if, if we've put our focus there, what I've found is that in growing, all of a sudden, that growth begins to choke out the weeds instead of the weeds choking you out. And so I don't want to just focus on how do we get rid of, but then how do, we, how do we begin to put on? How do we begin to build these new things into our life? Now, in order to do that, you need to understand how these practices were developed with your flesh because you can use it for your Spirit. So how do you develop a new habit? I don't know if you know how a habit works or how you begin a habit, but there's a phenomenal book out there called Power of Habit. I highly encourage you to read it. It breaks all of this down. It's where I began to learn about it. And it talks about this practice, or it talks about this, uh, it talks about this experiment that they did. And it was a simple tea maze, and inside the tea maze there was a piece of chocolate, and then there was a door over here, and they'd put a rat in this tea maze. And they began to run this rat through this tea maze over and over and over and over and over again. Now, at the same time as they were doing that, they began to monitor, or they were monitoring his brain activity. As this was being played out, they noticed something really phenomenal. When they, at the beginning, the first couple times that they put the rat in the tea maze, they'd open the door, and the rat's mental function was way up here. Brain activity was way off the charts, really high. He's checking everything out. He's looking around every corner, making sure there's not a cat there, right? All of this, he's, he's making his way down through it. But as he did it over and over and over and over again, that changed. And they began to watch his brain activity decrease and decrease and decrease until it got to the point where it was almost no brain activity at all. As soon as the door would open, he'd run straight to the chocolate. No brain activity. He began to do it subconsciously. Now, all of us have experienced this. This happens in your life all the time. It's actually necessary for your survival because you don't have the conscious ability to think through everything that you do in a day. And so when you've done something enough that your body actually knows how to do it out of habit, where it knows what to expect, then all of a sudden it begins to shift that to your subconscious, and your subconscious takes, takes over. You've experienced this. When you've driven somewhere and you've pulled into the parking lot, and all of a sudden you thought to yourself, how did I get here? Or maybe you were driving down a common road, and you meant to go one place, but you end up driving someplace else because it's where you most frequently go when you're on that road. And you began to drive subconsciously. You can do it. I don't suggest it. But all of a sudden, it takes over, and you begin to do something out of habit. You're not thinking about it. It's just something you naturally do. How many of you know who Neymar is? Soccer player? You should, it should be more than that. But anyway, anyway, it's very clear that Billy Graham has won the popularity contest as we've moved through this series. But, uh, but one of the most amazing things with Neymar is one of the greatest soccer players alive. They did, the same, they did the same study on him in terms of brain activity and 
Do you know what happens in Neymar's brain when he kicks a soccer ball? Nothing. It's entirely subconscious, which is why he can play the way that he plays, because he doesn't have to think about kicking the ball at all. It becomes subconscious. This is the development of a habit. Now, there's a second thing that they notice, and some of you have experienced this as well, is at the beginning as they ran this, he would find the chocolate, so the rat would find the chocolate, and there would be a huge spike of endorphins when he found the chocolate. Well, because it's chocolate, and you know what that's like too. But as they ran the experiment over and over and over again, they found that the spike of endorphins moved from when he found the chocolate to when the door opened. So when the door opened, the trigger was so associated with the reward that he experienced the spike of endorphins here. Do you know what that's called? That's called a craving. It's when you've experienced a habit or you've moved through something so, so much that your brain begins to experience the joy of the reward before it actually takes place. The interesting thing about this is that as they went through the process, there was oftentimes or sometimes a second door. When the spike of endorphins was here and the rat experienced the second door, he was fine. When the spike of endorphins moved to here and the rat experienced the second door, he was infuriated. This is experienced by addicts. Some of you have experienced this when it comes to stress eating. So the trigger is you experience stress, and you have a routine. And so when you experience stress, you eat, and it gives you the reward of joy or peace or whatever it, whatever it is that you're seeking in that. But you don't actually experience the spike of endorphins when you're eating. You experience it when the trigger happens. This is why, and, I, and many of you have said this in, to me in counseling. You say, you phrase it this way, I couldn't stop myself. Now you have a craving or an addiction. This is the way habits are formed. Now, that's significant, both for you to understand that that's how your flesh has formed those habits that you need to get rid of, but it's also significant because you can use this to your advantage. One of the reasons why we talk so frequently about a consistent time and place to our time with God is that we want to use this to our advantage you can begin to build habits that actually move you towards God instead of away from Him. I was so excited when I learned this in my own life because I thought, finally, the thing that has been destroying me, I can use to become who I was created to be. And now I see, okay, this is how this is how I begin to renovate, to rebuild my mind, to lay out those things that I say, okay, no, I'm going to become consistent with this thing. I'm going to become over and over and over again. And you've experienced this in good ways in your life, some of you. Some of you have experienced this as it pertains to Sunday morning because you're consistent here 
or on Sunday afternoon because you like to sleep in a little bit more than the other, other ones. But, the, but on Sunday afternoons, you come and you experience community in this place, and then you go on vacation, you're somewhere else on Sunday, and you feel like you're missing something. It's not just that you think it, you actually feel it. What have you developed? Well, you've developed a healthy craving. It can work for you, not just against you. And God has created this to actually reinforce that which is good in your life. If we can take advantage of it, to restructure, to, to renovate our minds. And so what is it that you look at, you say, okay, I'm gonna focus more on putting on, and so I'm gonna be, I'm gonna put on gratitude. One of the things that we know about habits is that they're a lot more effective if you tie them to anchors. So things that are consistent in your life. Let's say you have an anchor of eating three times a day and you eat at the same place and, and so you decide, okay, I'm going to, before I eat or after I eat, I'm gonna actually jot down three things that I'm grateful for every day. I'm gonna take a second to do three things that I'm grateful for. You could even pray about it. Interesting thing about praying before you eat. So, some of you, you've prayed before you eat your whole life. So if you don't, you feel awkward. If you start eating, you actually feel awkward. Why? You have a good habit. See how amazing this is if we can actually harness it? And so what if you decided, well, I want to spend more time in prayer. What, it's amazing. We could spend so much more time in prayer if you just started actually praying before you eat instead of re re just reciting whatever it is that you recite. Or what if you decide, I want to spend more time in prayer, and so you take the anchor of being here on Sunday, and you decide, you know what, I'm just going to make sure that I show up five minutes early. Not five minutes earlier than you get here. You'd still be five minutes late. Five minutes before the service starts. And, <laughs> and you come in, and you spend time in prayer. You tie it to an anchor that's really significant. You decide, okay, I'm going to consistently practice this. Now, again, I did, sometimes you can tie it to a trigger, it's a little bit harder. I talked about changing the routine. So one of the things that I experienced, and Anthony talked about this a little bit, that I've been experiencing lately, is that I'm almost never frustrated with my actual life. But, I, but I'm consistently frustrated by the difference between my actual life and my absurd expectation of life. So this reality doesn't cause me frustration. This gap causes me tremendous frustration. And so it used to be something would happen that was short of my expectation. I'd experience this frustration, and then I'd get upset and all of these things. And I don't know what the reward was. I'm going to be in control somehow. But, the, but I decided, okay, wait a second. I'm going to change this routine. So when I begin to feel frustration, here's what I want to do. I'm going to make sure, I just want to sit back and just take a picture of life and say, okay, am I actually frustrated with my life? When I look at my boys, when I look at my family, when I look at all that God's given me, Am I actually frustrated with my life? No, I'm not. Well, you can tie it to a trigger. It's a little bit harder to do, but you can do it. I'd start first with the anchors, though. And so what are the things that you're going to put on? You, have to, you want to tie those to the anchors, the things that are consistent in your life. It's going to be time with God. Don't just decide you're going to do it on your own, yeah, and you're going to start at some random time. Tie it to something you already consistently do. And so if you consistently show up at work at, at, at the same time, then tie it to that. And sit in that same spot when you get to work and just spend time with God for that time and start to develop that habit. 
And if you do that, you practice something consistently like that for four months, you're going to begin to develop a craving. You, do, you practice it for, for six months, and you'll find yourself doing it without even thinking about it. So what is it that you want to put on? Tie it to an anchor. The other thing that's important is community. Habits are almost never formed individually. They're almost always formed in community. You know this about your bad habits. Almost all the things you're trying to put off, you formed in community. You need to be in community and find somebody who can actually help you with this, someone that you're, that you're sharing this with, which is why another thing that's important is that you track it. We, we, have, we think that we have an idea of whether or not we're failing or successful at things. You really, have no, you really don't know yourself that well. If you track it, you'll be able to see it better. And it's a good way to be able to share it with the person that you're accountable with. Now, pay attention when it comes to community and the person that you're accountable with because it needs to be someone that you actually care about failing in front of. And if you find someone and they're not a good accountability partner, I've never seen someone who is not a good accountability partner for me become a good accountability partner. So just move on to a different one. Say, I'm sorry, this isn't working out. We're not really helping each other. As a matter of fact, we might be making each other worse. So we're going to try some, I'm going to try a different accountability partner. Just be honest about it. And move on to a different accountability partner. Recently, I've become accountable. Vinny's become one of my accountability partners as it pertains to our reading. And I've found that Vinny's a really good accountability partner because I'm a little bit afraid of him. I'm a little bit afraid of him, and I don't really want to fail in front of him. And so it's, it's actually been pretty effective. And I'm not talking about somebody who's loading you with guilt and all that stuff. Hopefully you understand that. I'm talking about someone who, who encourages you well, but at the same time, like, you want to push each other towards that which is best. It needs to be inside a community. Tie it to an anchor. And then begin to work to take advantage of this in your life. Don't just have it work against you. Have it work for you. So that we can, we can not just know that we need to, to put off and put on, but we can actually practice it. We can actually begin, as Romans says, to renovate our minds. I, let me take you just really quickly take you back to that. Because some of you may be here and you say, well, okay, Chris, if I'm doing this, this doesn't necessarily answer the question of what it is that I'm supposed to do. True, but that's not the question we actually asked. Most of you have been thinking that way. Every, for the past several weeks, I've said, we're changing the question from who do you want to be when you grow up to who were you created to be? And all of you heard it as, what was I created to do? It's not the question we asked. The question we asked is, what, who am I created to be? Who you were created to be is different than what you were created to do. But it starts with this question. And that has to do with character. It has to do with who you are. It has to do with putting off and putting on and doing what you already know to do and responding to the answers that you already have. That's how you begin to renovate your mind. And as you renovate your mind, listen to what Romans 12 says. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing, the renovation of your mind. And as you become who you were created to be, then what happens then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. As we become who we were created to be, we will be able to determine and see, to test and approve what we were created to do.
And the amazing thing is that we get to harness the very way that we were created, the very way that our mind works for that to become our reality. God does not call you to be an overachiever. He created you to achieve this. You were perfectly designed to achieve exactly what he is calling you into. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that we We not, only, we not only see you calling us to this, but we can know, and we've seen this so many times in so many different ways, that you, you're not saying, go, figure this out. You are going to lead us into it. You're right there with us. Your, your spirit is the power that allows us to live this out. And so I pray that we would take your hand And that we would decide, okay, no, no, uh, that we would decide to walk through, that these dominoes would fall, that we would ask the right question, do what we need, what we know we need to do, that we would follow you and the answers we already have, and that we would begin that process, putting on, putting off, undermining those habits that would destroy us, building into and constructing those habits that allow us to be that allow us to live up to the glorious standard for which we were created. In Jesus' name, amen.